hear God's word. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's got to be the Mount Everest in the Bible. It is for me, anyway. Now, I want to begin today with two questions that come out of this text. And I begin with the questions because how you answer them will determine whether you may revel in the rest of this sermon as yours or whether you are on the outside looking in, hearing an invitation to come to the banquet. The sermon will be useful, I hope, in either situation, but it makes a big difference how you hear it. And so here are the questions. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you do need to, in your heart, quietly speak the answer to the Lord, and he will know the truth. Question number one. Both the questions come from verse 28. It's not my text. It's the preparation for the text. The text will be verse 35. But let's get our questions from verse 28, because here we have a description of who the people are to whom these things apply. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. One, to those who love God. And two, to those who are called according to his purpose. So the grand work of redemption that causes everything to work together for good and brings us into conformity to Jesus Christ and brings us through calling and justification to glory. All of that applies to people who love God, one, and are, calling, are called. So question number one, 
Do you love God? Do you love God? Now, let me make sure the question is clear, because it could be easily misunderstood. We're not talking about a perfect love here. There is no perfect love on earth in this age, short of the love of Jesus Christ for us. In fact, we all know that love has a, an imperfection about it that is nevertheless real. You know when you love your spouse. You know when you love a friend. You know when you love a mother or a father, somebody precious to you. And you know it's not perfect. In fact, you know that the closer it gets to perfection, the more painful the imperfections are. So do not confuse me when I ask, do you love God with do you love him perfectly? Rather, take the words of Jesus. He said, um, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So ask it this way. Is God my treasure? Is God my treasure? When he said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. He meant, there will your love be. And he was trying to get people to have their love, not in money on the earth, but in God, in heaven. And so my question really boils down to this. Is God more of a treasure to you than anything else in the world? Okay. Question number one. Do you love God? Question number two. Are you called by God? Are you called by God? All things work together for good for those who love God and are called. Now let me clarify this one before you give your decisive answer to the Lord. That does not mean, have you ever heard Billy Graham say, repent and come to Christ? That is, have you been externally summoned to have a relationship with Jesus? That's not what it means. Millions and millions of people have heard that kind of external summons to come to Jesus who did not respond and are presently still in rebellion and rejection of that call. But the meaning of this call is laid out in verse 30, where it says those whom he predestined, he called and those whom he called, he justified and those whom he justified, he glorified. In other words, Calling here means something so active, so effective, so decisive that it brings you to the point where you have faith to be justified and it brings you to the point of glorification. Now, I want to use a picture for you. I was thinking a lot of how can I help this truth get across? Because this is a truth that is not easily comprehended by a lot of people. Let me put one text on the table more and then I'll give you a picture. The text is 1 Corinthians 1.23. You don't need to look this up. Let me just read it to you. It's about calling. It says, we preach Christ crucified. So there's the message. Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block at times. And to the Gentiles, foolishness at times. But to those who are called, this message of Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, some hear the message and they stumble over it because it's just, oh, a crucified Messiah. That's just incomprehensible. And others hear the message and say, crucified like a criminal. That's just foolishness. Why would you worship somebody like that? And they, they stumble. They take offense. 
But those who are called hear the message, they see him, and they say, that is the very power of the living creator God. That is the very wisdom of the creator of the universe. I must build my life around that power and that wisdom. That's the evidence of being called. Let me give you a picture. Before you were called, now this applies to everybody in this room. Some, I was six years old, I believe, when the Lord decisively called me. And I didn't know anything theologically, hardly. It could have happened when you were little, it could have happened yesterday. But here's the way it happened. Before you were called, you were asleep in your bedroom. So picture a bedroom, you're in your bed and you're sleeping. And that's your life. And into your bedroom, Christ walks and stands at the foot of your bed. And he is risen, and yet the scars are there, and the blood may be still dried on his side, and, and he is glorious in his Calvary love and in his risen radiance, standing at the foot of your bed, unmistakably, magnificently real, and you're asleep. And not only are you asleep, but you're dreaming. And in your dream, which is your life, you see Jesus. And for the life of you, you can't figure out why anybody's excited about this guy. He may be a historical figure. He, he may be an ethical teacher. But there's nothing about him that attracts you whatsoever. You see him in your dream and there he is. And you see people sort of worshiping and getting excited. And you just pause through your head and say, sorry, I don't get it. You're on a, you know, I can't get into you. You know, your, your universe is not my universe. And, and this is your dream. This is your life. He is there and he is no big deal. He is unattractive, uninteresting and boring, frankly. He's boring. And then the Holy Spirit of God comes into your bedroom. Sweet, powerful, quiet Holy Spirit and hovers over your sleeping head. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, some late night, some early morning, some Sunday service, some radio program, some Billy Graham crusade, some walk in the park, some conversation with a friend, you hear, he says, wake up. And it so startles you, and the first thing you see is you turn and you see Jesus. And he's totally different than what you were dreaming him to be. You see his power and his radiance as the creator of the universe and the son of the living God. You see his love just pouring out of his eyes towards you and his crucified hands and feet that he laid down for you. And now he is absolutely, irresistibly, compellingly, not only interesting, but attractive and glorious. And you say, he is the wisdom of God. He is the power of God. I will, I must, how can I not build my life around this great man of the universe? Question number two. Have you been called? You don't need to even remember that experience. That's not the issue. It happened. Theologically, we know it happened. The question is, this morning, is Christ the wisdom of God and the power of God 
for you. Okay, let's pray now as we answer those questions. Lord, we've asked two questions. And before we move on in the message, we really want to deal with you because life and death hang in the balance here. And in this room, there have to be, of this number, people who, when they are put in a corner, as it were, this morning with these two questions, feel very awkward because they have not loved you and they are not yet counting you as wisdom and power. So, Lord, I pray for those of us who've been called that you'd awaken us afresh to these realities. And I pray for those in our midst right now whom you are lovingly presenting at the foot of their dreaming bed right now. They're dreaming. Their life is a dream. They're not in reality yet. It feels like reality to them. Television feels very real. The person they're sitting beside feels very real. Money feels real. A lot of things feel real and they're going to vanish. You are real. You created all reality. You are ultimately real. And they're sleeping in a dream world. And I just pray now for them that the Holy Spirit would speak through my message. Wake up. Wake up. In his name I pray. Amen. Now the rest of this message is devoted to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer to that is nobody and nothing. And what I want you to hear this morning, very simply, is that phrase. Nobody, you who love God, you who are called according to his purpose, nobody and nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. The love of Christ is so mighty, nobody and nothing can separate you. Let's look at the things he lifts as possibilities that might separate you. He says, shall tribulation or any kind of pressure or trouble, shall distress or any kind of difficulty or crisis in your life, shall persecution or any kind of opposition or ridicule that might come from others, shall famine or any kind of suffering or scarcity, shall nakedness or any kind of assault or shame, shall peril or any kind of danger or threat, shall sword or any kind of injury or violence or death itself separate you from the love of Jesus that he has for you this morning? And he not only says no, no would be a glorious answer, wouldn't it? If he said no, none of that will separate you. But he says more than that. He says, not only are you so bound together in love that Jesus has for you. You know, I thought that as an illustration, I, didn't, I decided not to do it because I, I thought I might get beat. But I thought I would get a, a stick or something and I would invite somebody to come up here on the platform. I said, try to take this out of my hand. Like John Bloom there. Try to take this out of my hand. Give it all you've got. And we'd wrestle here on the platform. And I would beat him, but I wasn't sure I could, so I decided not to do it. I would beat him and, and he would say, I give up. I say, you, you, you're right. And, and I've got this the way Jesus has got you. Only he's God. He's God. And nobody, nobody is going to take this stick called John Paper or your name 
out of his hand. But he didn't just say that. Okay, that would be a great answer. He said, shall all of these things possibly separate you from his love? And he said, no. In fact, the love of his holding is of such a nature that not only will he never let go and will he always so work in you that you continue to love him and be called by him, but he will also make everything that you experience in his grip a triumph of grace. Peril will become triumph. Nakedness will become triumph. Famine will become triumph. Persecution will become triumph. He will turn all of that stuff around. And Romans 8.28, which is the whole thing here, comes true down in verse 35. And everything, all that horrible, terrible, painful stuff listed there, threatening to separate you, will not only not separate you, it will turn for triumph for you. Super conquerors. More than conquerors through him who loved us. This is a glorious chapter. I love Romans 8. Memorize Romans 8. You want to ride on the heights with the... Heinz, memorize Romans 8 and say it to yourself day in and day out. Now, let me try to orient what we're doing this morning in the bigger picture of this series. The greatest of these is love begun last Sunday. It's getting bigger and bigger the more I think about it. The way it fits in is this. What we saw last Sunday from 10 of those texts, from some of those 10 texts that I shared with you, was that the love of Jesus Christ, God, for you is the foundation and spring of your love and my love for each other. And therefore, if we do not apprehend spiritually being loved by Jesus with this kind of love, we probably will not have the resources to love each other and it will begin to falter. And therefore, the first agenda item has to be to get clearer, to be awakened afresh to the love that God has for us. That then is the resource with which we may love each other. John thirteen thirty four. A new commandment I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you. The love of Jesus for me makes my little love for you an echo of that shout. And if I don't hear that shout, if it's becoming dim, if it's fading away, if, if I'm starting to float kind of unloved in the universe, where will I have resources to respond in love to you? Or John fifteen twelve to 13. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life for his friends. So the self-giving, self-sacrificing love of Jesus for you is the, the foundation underneath love that enables you to love another. Or here's another one. This one's very important, very personally to me. It, it hit home fresh this week. Uh, Ephesians 4.32 to 5.1. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. This is a description of love. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as loved children. Now, let's unpack that for a minute. First, he loves us by forgiving our sins. Everything begins with forgiveness. Everything begins with getting right with God and having all that junk in our lives dealt with. 
so that we're clean before him by virtue of Christ's righteousness being imputed to us and we stand whole in his presence. And then he adopts us into his family and we have this father-child relationship and then he goes on like a father loving us and then he says, imitate me. He doesn't start over here. Imitate me so that I can forgive you so that I can be nice to you as a father. This imitation thing, and you see this in these phrases. Imitate me, God says, imitate me as loved children. Sometimes I think in modern translations, when you put the B on the front of loved, it just kind of waters it down. Beloved. At least, I I guess that's the way I grew up. When I hear the word beloved, I don't feel loved. (laughs) Beloved doesn't communicate love. It's, It's sort of a stock word, you know. But... But when somebody says to me, loved, loved, that's all it is in Greek. There's no but in Greek. It's just loved, loved ones, loved ones. So here, loved ones, loved, when you hear beloved, it's not a stock phrase. It really means love. So the right translation would be, be imitators of God as loved Children. So I, I step back and I say, okay, I'm to imitate the love of God. Now, that is not like, let's get this clear. This is very important. That is not like a peon audience out there watching God perform love on a stage. And you don't know him, but wow, you're impressed by that performance. And you're sitting in the audience and you're supposed to go out and do that. That, that kind of image of imitation would be all wrong. Or knowing that a certain fellow might be playing for the bulls today who's been gone for a little while and thousands and thousands of kids who have his number and bulls all over the place on their shirts see that and they say, oh, I wish I could have those moves. I wish I could slam dunk from the foul line and jump over six feet in the air. And That's not it either. Because these poor little insecure kids will never, ever be a Michael Jordan. Ever. And thirdly, it's not like a young girl who's just starting on the violin and she's got her favorite CD of her favorite maestro. She's trying her best to copy that and she doesn't know him from Adam. All three of those analogies are wrong. The right one is imitate God as loved children. Because The love not only is that which is to be imitated, it is the love that is grasping, pulling, enabling, empowering to do the imitation. That's the key, which isn't true in any of those other analogies. It is the being loved by my Father in heaven which makes me say, oh, I want to be like that. It's the being loved. It's not just kind of standing away and admiring a performance and then trying to look in myself for resources to get like that. It is the feeling of the love reaching out, drawing me in, cleansing me, accepting me, making me whole. It says, oh, if I could be that way for others, it would be the greatest thing in the world. Is that clear now? What the imitation is that he's calling for there? John, 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives For the brethren. He laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So now you you get the feeling for why I'm emphasizing this sense of being loved this morning. Because if we're going to love each other like that, 
It's because it's happened to us. I love to talk about radical Christianity. I was over at Northwestern College yesterday for a couple of sessions, and uh, that was the theme of Call to War, uh, Radical Christianity. And what I mean by radical Christianity is giving your life away for other people. And in doing that, showing the world, showing the people around you who are watching that you are so secure in Jesus, that you are so bound to him, that he has you so firmly, that his promises are so precious and so glorious, and your destiny in him is so firm and so fixed and so assured that you can actually give your life away. Just give it away for others. That's radical Christianity. It comes from sending your roots, radix roots, down into the love that God has for you. So the reason I am focusing today, and I probably will focus right through Easter, on being loved by Jesus, being loved by God. Because after Easter, I'll probably take up 1 Corinthians 13 and just go verse by verse through what love is and try to build it into our lives. But, but to, get us, to get a foundation ready for us, we really need to sense the love of God. Sense the love of God. Wouldn't we experience tears if letters like the one I'm about to read became the norm in the way we got communication at this church? A pastor, this is a different pastor from Iowa. God bless Iowa. I don't tell Iowa jokes. Iowa bless my heart this week. Here's another pastor from Iowa. He's not even a Baptist General Conference pastor, I don't think. Um, and he wrote me a letter. It's dated February 26th. And I just opened it this week because I've got a pile of mail that I'm still working through from my writing leave. Calculating back, the service he refers to, I think, must have been February 12th. And I don't remember February 12th, but he did. Two weeks ago, while on vacation, I returned to Bethlehem. I was full of joy because of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It was manifested in ways that I have never sensed before at Bethlehem. Since about 1988 and every year thereafter, I have worshipped with you and sat under your ministry. While your preaching has always fed my soul, the congregation seemed unfriendly. We were never greeted or made welcome in all the times we visited and a chill surrounded the worship service. But two Sundays ago, I w it was different. Both my wife and I had people come to us, a fellow by the name of John Fast. God bless you, John. <laughs> a fellow by the name of John Fast spent a great deal of time visiting with me and thanked me for coming. The worship service and worship team were God-glorifying, with little focus on man. I can only imagine the darkness you've experienced this past year, yet I see God doing an even greater work through you and the church. I heard it in the preaching of the Word. I experienced it in the God-centered worship. I enjoyed it in the radiance and warmth of the congregation. The providence of God has ordained a time of darkness for the sake of purification. 
The greater glory of God is now being revealed. Now, here's my response to that letter. Several responses. My first response was to kind of bow and say, thank you, Father, for loving me. And would you go on with the purifying work here, please? Because how easy it is in a marriage and in a church to when you hear something pointed out, say, yes, I wish they'd fix that. They, us and they, us and they. And we all know that in a marriage, those of us who are married, if you devote years to reminding your spouse what she needs to fix or what he needs to fix, instead of devoting that energy to asking, how can I freshly, newly, creatively love this woman, this man? If you, if you get that backwards, you can create decades of misery, decades of misery. So in a church, so that I as a pastor, if, if my orientation is, God, get that congregation fixed, I will make you miserable. And if you devote most of your energies, you can devote some, but <laughs> most of your energies to get that pastor fixed rather than get me fixed, then we can make each other miserable. And so my first response to this letter was not to try to think of any, any other person but just to say, thank you, thank you, that on February 12th, you moved in one person's heart wonderfully. And uh, keep on purifying this pastor. Here's my other response. It ties in directly to last week. That's why this is such a significant letter to me, getting right after last Sunday. You remember last Sunday I said, now the point here from Francis Schaeffer that I'm lifting up as my quest and my goal and my longing is that we might discover how to bring together in a wonderful combination the holiness of God and the love of God so that we don't skimp and compromise on who he is in his majestic holiness, nor do we in any way fall short of what his love and tenderness and warmth and meekness and kindness is in life as it meets sin and imperfection. And here we have a letter that, that commends what we long so much to be brought together. He said the worship service and worship team were God-glorifying with little focus on man. And then he said, I enjoyed the radiance and the warmth of the congregation. It must be possible. Because it happened one Sunday. <laughs> it must be possible to be a God-centered, God-glorifying lover of God's sovereign greatness. And also to be a humble people, a tender people, a warm people who don't care about getting any egg on our face by welcoming somebody and then having them tell you, I've been here 22 years. That's okay. That's okay. I mean... If, we're, if, if radical Christianity means to die for another, wouldn't it mean to get egg on your face for another, too? Although dying is sometimes easier, I suppose, than getting egg on your face. God's going to do it. He's going to create in us a fresh, new work. Let me close by directing your attention to a prayer. Ephesians chapter 3, verses uh, 14 to 19. I just want to point out some connect, a connection here with Romans 8.35. Ephesians 3 is a prayer that many of us love and we've prayed it for years and years. 
Um, it's on the Fasting 40 card this time. It's probably going to be there again in April. I'll give those cards out to you next Sunday, by the way. Let me jump into verse 18 and show you what the, the goal of Paul's prayer is in verse 18. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, there are two metaphors here. Um, well, let, me, let me say another word before I say that. The goal is that we might grasp the love of Christ. It's high, it's deep, it's wide, it's broad. It's always beyond our grasp, but he wants you to grasp it. And he wants you to be grasped by it. That's my goal in this message, in the next three or four messages, that we would, in increasing ways, feel grasped by the incomprehensible love of Jesus Christ. And the question now is, how does that become an experiential reality, not just a doctrine that you affirm to say that the love is deeper than you can get to and higher than you can get to and wider than you can get to? How do you prove it in experience? And he gives the answer in verse 17, or at least part of the answer. Back up a few words into verse 17, where he says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have power to comprehend these things. So the key is this rootedness and groundedness or foundedness in love. Now, those are the two metaphors. One is a metaphor of roots going down into the ground of a big tree. And the other is the metaphor of a foundation of a building. And I think what Paul is saying is in order to comprehend the love that Christ has for you and not let it be just something you think about. Go ahead and put him to the test. Send your roots down into him just as deep as you can possibly send them. Whoa, push him, push him down, 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 down. And go ahead, spread out your foundation. Spread it out wide, wide, wide. And you will never drop over the end of his love where there's no more rock to build on into void or sand. And you will never get to the bottom and have your roots come out in China into air. It will never happen. They will go down and down and down. And there is no bottom to the love of Jesus. And there is no end to the extent of the love of Jesus. And he wants us not to say it, but to prove it with our rootedness and our groundedness in him. So the Lord is calling us now in this series to know his love, to know his awesome love so that we would come alive with that love for one another.